Well, today, uh, we, um, today begins one of the holiest and most treasured weeks of the Christian calendar. Uh, we gather together in celebration as children wave palm branches, we sing hosannas, the church gathers joyfully as we ponder the, the final week of our, our Savior's ministry. Uh, today is what we call Palm Sunday. Uh, I always tried to figure that out when I was a kid. I thought maybe it had something to do with hands and, you know, why are we waving our hands? And never, we didn't wave palms in our church when I grew up. And so I, I was a little confused by what this Palm Sunday meant. But uh, Palm Sunday is the day that marks Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, five days before his crucifixion. And in particular, it is the day that marks the announcement that King Jesus, the King of Israel, has arrived. It was on this day that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy by riding into the city on the full of a donkey. It was on this day that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy by revealing himself exactly 483 years after another announcement had been made, just as Daniel had predicted it would be. It was on this day that the Messiah revealed to the people that he was their king and he accepted that role as king and welcomed their, their praise as, his, as their king. And it was on this day that the people shouted out praises. They laid down a royal carpet for him and made palm branches, waved their palm branches before he entered the gate of the king. And so on this day, about 2,000 Palm Sundays later, we remind ourselves that Jesus is our king and is the fulfillment of the prophecies and the promises that began in Genesis and have continued throughout the entire Old Testament all the way up to the very morning that Jesus was crucified. Since we've turned to the New Testament, we've mostly been in the Gospels of Matthew and, and Mark so far. But uh, today, if you would turn with me to the Gospel of John. It's the fourth book of your New Testament. Uh, we turn to the Gospel of John where the disciple whom Jesus loved describes Palm Sunday in chapter 12. All four Gospels tell us about Palm Sunday. Uh, each, each of the Gospels give an account of of Jesus and the disciples and, and what they, they did in gathering the, the donkey and, and the preparations they made along the road, the people gathering. But, um, but John's account really just succinctly summarizes what the other three focused on at first. And, and then John zeroes in on four significant conversations that took place along the way and then probably throughout the week. But, but he keeps those conversations together in this passage because of their importance in their context with one another. The first conversation is the one that was taking place among the crowds during the events of Jesus' triumphal entry. And so read with me verses 12 through 19. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19, he writes, The next day the large crowd had come to the feast. Uh, the, excuse me. The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and, and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him uh, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard 
he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You know, the, um, the other three Gospels spend a bit of time dealing, the, dealing with the preparation for Jesus' entry and, and Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. But John first takes us to an unspoken conversation. Uh, it, it's a conversation that, that you're supposed to just imagine taking place. You're supposed to imagine what this conversation was like and, and how it unfolded. But it's a conversation that's extremely significant. Uh, before we jump to John's summary, you need to notice, first of all, who's having this conversation. Uh, the first party that he introduces uh, is in verse 12. And he simply describes it as a large crowd. And the large crowd was there for the feast, there, uh, there in Jerusalem, and they came out to see Jesus. You might ask yourself, well, how did, how did they hear that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And John gives us the answer to that in verse 17, where he mentions that the second party, of, who the second party of our conversation is. The second party is also simply described as the crowd. But this crowd had been with Jesus just a few weeks earlier when Lazarus was raised from the dead. So don't miss the significance of, of this event. This event in which Jesus raised a person from the dead. We, we Christians are, are kind of familiar with it, aren't we? we? We talk about the resurrection of the dead. Have you ever been to church and we've talked about the resurrection? Okay, two of you have been here when we talked about the resurrection. That's good. We've either failed drastically or it's still a little early. Um, we've talked about the resurrection many times. You've been in many churches. You've visited churches. You grew up in churches where we talk about the resurrection. And, and, and you know, sometimes I think we, we've become very familiar with the idea of a resurrection. Have we not? We, we, we're familiar with Jesus rising from the dead. We're familiar with the people that Jesus rose from the dead. We're familiar that, that with 1 Corinthians 15 and many other passages that talk about our resurrection from the dead. But don't miss the significance of what Jesus did. You see, I think sometimes we're tempted to go, yeah, sure. Yeah, resurrection, I learned that one in Sunday school. Cool stuff. Uh, Jesus kind of does that sort of thing. He makes dead people alive. How wrong is that, right? You know, we come to it with this perspective of familiarity. I mean, sometimes we get more excited about our favorite TV shows or which Avengers coming back. Whatever the next cliffhanger is, that's what keeps our, our interest. The resurrection? Oh, yeah, definitely. But think about what Jesus did the spring of that year and hear it for the very first time. Jesus made a dead man come back to life. Isn't that remarkable? And so imagine the kinds of conversations that have been taking place over those next few weeks. If you're one of the people and you're coming into Jerusalem, think about what people are talking about. A man just rose from the dead, and there's an entire crowd that was there, and they're telling the other crowd, this is what we saw. I was there, and I, he did this, and he said that, and, and, and these people were there, and, and Mary and Martha came, and then he said, and, and it was four days. And that. Imagine the conversations. Imagine the excitement that's brewing as people are discussing who this man is. People are talking. They're talking about the Messiah. 
Old Testament prophecies are being thrown around. They're looking at different texts of the Bible. They're looking at Psalm 118. They're looking at Genesis 3. They're reading through Daniel. They're looking through all these prophecies and looking, is this the one? Are these the things that are taking place? And they're asking these questions and they're having these conversations. And we're told about these two crowds that were in the middle of this conversation as the events of John chapter 12 unfold. People are talking about the Messiah. Hopes are rising of this one who has power over death. And if he can raise the dead, just imagine what he can do to save the people from Rome. Passover is approaching, and the king is going to arrive. A king who raises people from the dead. John describes this as one of the signs that Jesus performed. And so he lets us just imagine the conversation between these two crowds. But, but in verses 17 to 18, he summarizes what is happening and says the crowd that had been with him continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. And, and I, I don't want us to miss that this is, this is no insignificant detail. And it should be an encouragement to you and I. It should serve as a reminder to all of us that we've been charged with that very same task, have we not? You, you have a message of eternal life. You have a message and are called to bear witness of the life that he's given to us. Our, our sins have been forgiven. We were dead in our sins and we've been given eternal life. God's spirit resides within us and we have the joyous title, ambassadors for Christ. That's you. If you are a follower of Jesus, then you are an ambassador of Christ, one who bears witness of the life that he's given to you. And so might the excitement of that conversation that was happening in Jerusalem on this first Palm Sunday, might it just be a sampling of, of the incredible bearing witness of, of what we also know. And let us never become apathetic about the death and resurrection of our Lord. Might it never be something that's just familiar to us, but might we marvel at what Jesus Christ has done for us each new day. Because Jesus not only raised Lazarus from the dead, he himself raised himself from the dead. So these events of Jesus' entry on a, a young donkey, they were happening in the middle of this conversation. Jesus' disciples had been sent out to prepare the, 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 uh, the way, uh, palm branches were put down and were being waved in the air. And over the centuries, palm branches had really become a symbol. And, and you know, we wave them around, and he's like, okay, that's kind of cool, that's kind of fun. And the kids, you know, come in with their palm branches. And, and, uh, and we have these pictures of, you know, people doing these things. Okay, they make a carpet for him. What's the significance of these things? But over the centuries, the palm branch had become a, a symbol uh, of, of Israel as a nation. It had become a symbol of their victory. Uh, palm branches were etched inside the temple. Uh, they were, uh, there's a story of one of the Maccabees came into uh, Jerusalem and palm branches were laid before him. It was, it was a recognition of a great leader, a symbol of victory. And, and palm branches were used to welcome great leaders and kings. And so just imagine with me, maybe it would help put it in perspective, uh, a July 4th parade. You can close your eyes if you need to or just imagine it with your eyes open, but, but you can picture it, can't you? probably see different colored tractors going down the road. See kids on the sidewalk waiting for candy to be spilled out somewhere, maybe catch an, an extra one. Um, on every float, 
on every tractor. Uh, what do you see waving in the air? There's American flags, aren't there? It represents the freedom our forefathers fought for, they handed down to us. It represents the country that we love. It represents everything that we cherish about the land that we live on, right? And so when you, can you picture a July 4th parade with no flags? This wouldn't be the same, would it? Now I want you to take all the emotion, all the symbolism, all the love for what you believe that flag to represent. And I want you to transfer those ideas and those emotions and those concepts, and I want you to transfer that to the palm branch. That's the picture. You see, this is what was happening as Jesus makes his way down that road. And all the excitement represented by miles of green branches waving all, all the way down the way. All of it was for their king who had finally come. Add to this uh, sight of deep green being waved everywhere, the sound of the people crying out, Hosanna! Again, something we're kind of familiar with. It's kind of like praise the Lord or hallelujah. And we, we hear these words that are used and thrown around and we kind of lost some of their meaning. Uh, the kids, and I think Ms., uh, Cindy mentioned it earlier today. Maybe it was Abby. Somebody mentioned it. Was it you? <coughs> must have been Cindy, right? And um, it comes from the Hebrew verb that means help us. And, and the ending has a, kind of a, a please attached to it. And so, save us, please, is the, the idea behind this word, Hosanna. And so it had become a word of praise and a word of exaltation, but the, the word behind it means, please, please, help us, save us, O oh God. But more than that, every Jew that was crying out Hosanna and using those words were well acquainted with Psalm 118, which Matt just read for us. And that's where this cry comes from. I'd like to read it to you again and think about it this time with palm branches being waved and the idea of the king coming into Jerusalem. Think about what Jesus is doing as he rides on the foal of a donkey across the threshold of the gates of Jerusalem, presenting himself as their king. Psalm 118, verses 19 through 29 again. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to Yahweh. This is the gate of Yahweh. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is Yahweh's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that Yahweh has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Yahweh. There it is, Hosanna. O Yahweh, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of Yahweh, that Yahweh is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up, up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to Yahweh, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And if you're a Jew that's sitting there in that parade, those are the words that are in the back of your mind. And if you cry out Hosanna, 
it would be as familiar to you as us crying out, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know right where that's from, don't you? We all know it. Just as they would have known Psalm 118, this apparently the middle chapter of the Bible. Is that right, Matt? I had forgotten that. Good. Thanks for pointing that out. They were familiar with it. They knew it. However, there was a dark reality looming behind the scenes. As beautiful as this event was, the crowds missed the significance of what God's kingdom was supposed to look like. Jesus is going to one day return. I, I believe that he will come back. He still has a plan for the nation of Israel. He is still going to fulfill uh, his promises that are going to be fulfilled during the second coming of Jesus. And, and, and he will one day return and establish his kingdom in Israel. But the priority of his kingdom was and always has been and will be during the millennial reign of Jesus when he reigns here physically on earth. The priority is still going to be to first transform the hearts of men one at a time. And all along, Jesus knew that every single step toward Jerusalem was a step closer to the cross. And the people didn't get that. They didn't get what it was about. Verse 19 expresses the darkness within the hearts of Israel's leaders, their focus on their personal loss of power, and, and within a few short days, they are going to turn the crowds all too easily because the crowds wanted a king on their terms. Not a king that came to save us from our sin. Not a king who came to save us from our, our ancient enemy, but a king who would save us from Rome, who would lead the nation and sit on the throne of David. But not in the way that Jesus had come to offer the kingdom. Now in the midst of the events of this day, John uh, excuse me, in the midst of the, the, the events of this week, uh, these, these passages probably reflect uh, what happens over those few days. Um, John immediately brings us to another conversation. This time, uh, we get to read the words of the conversation between Jesus and a group of Gentiles, uh, even though this conversation actually took place through messengers that probably went back and forth between them. Listen to what John writes, starting in verse 20. It says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly. Which is Bible shorthand for pay attention. Because what I say next is really, really, really important. And you need to pay attention to this. As somebody put in our men's discipleship group last week, uh, this is going to be on the test. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where will my servant be also? If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. 
It was hard to see in the English, but was hinted at with the, the, the added ad- adjective, the word eternal, is that Jesus is actually, in, in the original language, he's using two different words uh, for the word life. And so when you read through that paragraph and it says life and eternal life, he's, he's actually using two different words in the original language. Uh, one word, uh, psyche, is, is the, the Greek word, um, not pronounced quite like that, but, but we get the English words from it, like psychology and psychic and, and other things like that. Uh, but it basically means physical life. Uh, you can translate it soul, life. Uh, it, it's the, the life of breathing, the life of eating and, and surviving in these physical bodies. It's the life of, of dealing with emotions and everything that it involves being a person here on this earth. But with the other word, Jesus is indicating a, a life that is beyond this world. It's the word zoe, uh, from which we get zoology and other things that have to do with life. And Jesus indicates a life that's beyond this physical world. And so the translation in verse 25 that says eternal life, it really captures the point that Jesus is making. And these verses, what they do, though, is this represents a shift in the Gospel of John. Sometimes we'll have to come back and, and study the Gospel of John together. Um, but it's, it's these verses where there's this shift, a, a turning of a new page. It's the shutting of one door and the opening of another. Uh, the, the Jewish leaders have rejected Jesus. The, the leaders of Israel said, no, no, he's not our Messiah. We're not, we're not going to follow him. The crowds are, are going to be right behind the Jewish leaders in rejecting him. Israel rejected their own Messiah, the one that they had been looking for and waiting for for centuries. But remarkably, in Jerusalem, there's a group of Greeks we're told about. These aren't, these aren't Greek-speaking Jews. Sometimes Greeks refers to a group of Jewish people who were from a, a different territory and they spoke Greek. But these are, these are actually Gentiles from Greece who had come to worship Israel's God and to be a part of the Passover celebration, even though they couldn't go into the, 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 proper, uh, the temple proper area, just the court of the Gentiles. They'd come to worship Israel's God. And, and they send a message and they, they find one of his disciples, Philip, who seems to maybe probably have something more to do with the Greeks and, and the Gentiles than some of the other disciples. Uh, he had a Greek name, if I understand correctly, and, and, and their message is simple. We want to see Jesus. Isn't, isn't that a beautiful request, though? It's just basic. It's just there. It, it, it should reflect the heart of each one of us, shouldn't it? I want to see Jesus. I want to know him. I, I want to meet him. And, and so they make this request, and they go through Philip. And Philip's not quite sure what to do with that, I don't think. You know, we're, we're ministering to the Jews. That's been the focus of Jesus' ministry all along. And, and now these Gentiles come, and, and they make a request. And, and so Philip's a little unsure. So he goes to Andrew, who is very commonly brings people to Jesus. We see Andrew bringing people uh, to Jesus all the time. And so Philip and Andrew come to Jesus together, and, and they bring the message to him. We wish to see Jesus. And Jesus takes this beautiful request as the opportunity to extend his invitation to the Gentiles. The kingdom in men's hearts would not only be for the Jews, it would still be for the Jew first, but it wouldn't be just for the Jews, but his kingdom would be offered to anyone who follows Jesus. 
And it's with this conversation that, that the, the conversation in the book of John shifts away from his ministry to the public and to the Jewish people, and it shifts to opening up the gospel to all the Gentiles. And everything else from this point forward in the gospel of John is going to be very private and mostly conversations that he has with his disciples until he's arrested. It doesn't seem that Jesus honors that request by meeting with him personally. Maybe he did. We're just not really told. Uh, but because he had come first to the chosen nation of Israel, um, but the message that certainly was sent back to these Greeks, uh, to, to, um, it has incredible implications. Uh, he starts with an illustration. It's an illustration that we're all familiar with. We, we plant seeds. We put them in the ground. We bury them. I don't think he's being scientific here. There's a lot of people who go, well, technically seeds don't die. You know, they, uh, that's not Jesus' point. His point is you bury it in the ground just like you do a dead person, right? It's a picture of what happens. And, and this seed that, that's just this little piece of something that goes in the ground, and, and then what happens to it? Life. <laughs> and it's beautiful. And it's amazing. And, and he's just pointing to the fact that before a seed grows into a plant, you bury the seed in the ground like you would a dead body. The message that he's preaching here, I'm offering life. Jesus is offering eternal life. And that's the message that goes back to these Greeks who wanted to see Jesus. And then he starts using big words like whoever, twice, whoever. And then anyone, anyone. He essentially tells the Greeks how they can not only see him, but how they can serve him and receive the honor from God the Father. He offers them eternal life in a context where people are talking about a man who just raised somebody from the dead. Can he do this? Absolutely. And so the Greeks receive a message of receiving eternal life from the person who raises people from the dead. And they know this. So how is it that anyone can have this? Jesus says, follow me. Understand the things of this world are, are temporary in nature. And if you choose the things of this world rather than following Jesus, then you will be like the seed that is never planted in the ground. But choose Jesus, and you will not only experience eternal life, but you will also be honored by the Father in heaven. And it's still a message that is just as real for us who are Gentiles today and to anyone who would come and follow Jesus. And so it's with this promise that Jesus makes a claim that goes beyond making a dead man's body come back to life. It, it goes beyond the salvation that was offered just to Israel. It goes beyond a king for Israel. And it addresses really what Jesus is doing here. He addresses the heart of the entire story. Everything that we've been looking at in this entire series has led to this moment and to the moments that took place over that week. Jesus is returning to the promise You see, we died in the Garden of Eden, didn't we? We, we chose to reject God's plan. We rejected God's story. And in Genesis chapter 3, we, we died even though our bodies continued to live. Kind of the principle Jesus is talking about here, isn't it? 
don't get eternal life, but even though the physical life continues on, if you hold on to that physical life, then you lose the eternal life as well. Jesus is returning to the promise, and he's about to crush the head of the serpent in the days following. And when he does so, and when he raises his own body to life again, he also will crush death. Now, now Jesus isn't quite done with his message to the Greeks. We're going to return to that here in just a few moments. But, but first, John's going to take us into a third conversation. And this third is a conversation between Jesus and God the Father. Look at verses 27 to 30. John tells us that Jesus continued to talk, but he shifts to a prayer. and says, now is my spirit troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said, it said it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Uh, the, the first words that Jesus used that, uh, when he turns to this prayer that he says, he says, my soul is troubled. Uh, I want you to notice that he uses the same word here that he used in the previous paragraph that we were looking at. Remember I said there was two words for life. There was psyche and zoe. Uh, this is the first word. Jesus is saying, my physical life is, is troubled. My soul is troubled. This is, this is the word that means soul, life. And, and it's, I, don't, it, I know it's not a coincidence that Jesus uses this word here. He, he announces to them that as a human living in the flesh, that his soul was disturbed. And Jesus knows what's next. He knows what's coming. He knows that the cross waits for him and, and all that he has to do, it, all he has to do is say, Father, deliver me from this. Save me. Deliver me from this cross and from this suffering. And, and then he would have preserved his life, his psyche, but he would have denied the purpose for which he had come. All of human history, all of the story, came down to this week. It came down to this hour, this moment. The Father had arranged everything from eternity past around the appearance of His Son who came to dwell among us and to give us His life as a, as a ransom for ours. And so instead, Jesus prays a different prayer and says, Father, glorify Your name. And you see what He's, he's saying? It's not just a general prayer. It's a prayer of obedience. It's a prayer of submission. It's a prayer that says, I'm not going to ask selfishly for my life to be saved through this. But I'm going to do what we purposed that I would come to do. And so God, glorify yourself in my death and the salvation of the multitudes. Father, glorify your name. He chooses God's plan and he chooses God's glory and to lose his life so that we may obtain eternal life. But then something remarkable happens. Did you notice that as we read through that? I don't think the other Gospels mention this. We know it happened a couple other times. You remember when 
the heavens opened and there was a voice from heaven speaking to Jesus? What was the first time? It was at his baptism. There was another time. It wasn't a huge crowd, but there were people present. Good job. The transfiguration. He's up on the mountain with Peter and John and James. And, and Jesus was transfigured and his glory shone and, and God spoke from heaven again audibly. And so God says this time, he says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. God's saying he glorified his name through Jesus' ministry on earth. And after Jesus submitted himself to death on the cross, God is going to glorify his name again through Jesus' resurrection from the dead and everything that comes with that. And now John informs us that the people were confused. Um, Some thought they heard thunder. Uh, Some thought that it was an angel. Uh, We're going to see how they they walk in darkness in a moment. So it might be that their confusion was because of the hardness of their hearts. But but Jesus explains that God had spoken in this way, and and he did it for their sake. Which leads us to the final conversation in which he appeals for them and to you to believe. Jesus begins the conversation with the crowd with a statement about what he had come to accomplish. He says in verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Essentially, Jesus declares that this is the moment. This is the hour. He's raised a man to life. He's declared himself to be the Messiah and their king. And now the time has come. In terms of Galatians chapter 4, the fullness of time had arrived. Everything from the beginning to the end points to this hour. And so the world is going to be judged. Satan, the serpent of old, is about to be crushed. And then Jesus drops the bomb. He speaks of being lifted up. It was a figure of speech that indicated death. Um, I don't know if they particularly heard lifted up and said crucifixion. Uh, That's what he means by it, uh, specifically what he means by it. Um, However much they did get, uh, they did understand that Jesus um, was saying that he was going to die. Uh, First, of all note that this is this is the final point that he makes to the gentiles remember the greeks that came to jesus and said we want we want to see jesus the disciples i I think this is the final point i i will draw all people to myself he's not saying all people every single human being is going to come to know jesus and, and and receive eternal life because we know that's many are going to reject him um I, I think what he's saying is not just Jews, not just Israel, but all people, all nations are, are, are going to be, come to myself. I'm going to draw them to myself. And so, again, this is an invitation not only to the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles that Jesus has a plan for everybody and that that's what he's going to accomplish. But the Jews understand that he essentially has just told them he's going to die. They don't like it, do they? That is not the way things are supposed to go. Verse 34 is one of the darkest verses in the Bible. Because what the crowds do here, I don't think I've ever seen this before, but as I, as I was doing this study, it's remarkable how they phrase things here in, in verse 34. They, they take Jesus' words and they twist the words of Jesus. 
They twist God's word, and essentially they reject the kingdom on Jesus' terms. Uh, do you remember back on the Sermon of the Mount? Uh, Jesus said a few times, you have heard it said, and what's the next thing he says? But I say to you, look at what happens. Um, they, they, they say, um, essentially the crowds say, you've heard it said. Uh, that's what Jesus had said. Now the crowds throw those very words back in Jesus' face. And they declare, we have heard from the law, but how can you say? Do you recognize that? And so notice they don't say we've read in the law because they didn't actually read that. They, they might be quoting Psalm 118 and taking the, the verses right before what we read out of context where it says, I, I will not die. And, and speaking, it's, it's not the context that, that that was intended. And so they're twisting God's word and making it say something that it doesn't say. Uh, they draw some false conclusions from the Old Testament and, um, and they declare that it is impossible for the Messiah to die. And so you're telling us he's going to die? That is not going to happen. And, and when they ask, you see that last question they ask? Who is this son of man? They're not seeking Jesus, are they? They're not saying, who is the son of man? They're saying, what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? What kind of Messiah do you think you are? Die? What they're asking Jesus is what kind of Messiah would die? A Messiah who dies is not the kind of Messiah that we want. God had declared in Genesis 3.15 that one day the seed of the woman would come and would crush the head of the serpent. A, a fatal blow, achieving victory over our ancient enemy. But the serpent would strike the heel of the promised one. Also, a fatal blow. What happens when you get bit by a viper? Yeah. It's fatal. God had promised a solution for our sin problem from the very beginning, but he had also promised the death of the deliverer. And throughout the entire Old Testament, God has been pursuing a relationship with his creation, and God has been all about reconciling people back to himself. And it all comes down to this moment. And now the crowds have thumbed their nose at Jesus and said, essentially, we reject the kind of kingdom you speak of. We reject a Christ that dies. And by all this, they've rejected God's story once again. Isn't that what's happening today? People are still saying that, aren't they? People are still saying, we reject kingdom on, on your terms. We want a kingdom. We want heaven. We want eternal life, but, but on our terms. Not through some Savior who has to die for us, but by earning our way. We, we need to prove ourselves. Perhaps that's where you're at today. You come before God and say, I'm going to show myself worthy. I'm going to stand before him in heaven. And when he asks, why should I be let in? I'm going to show him all of my good deeds and, and how this outweighs that. And It's not some free gift. I can't take a free a handout. And that's the kingdom on your terms, not his. And the world today still rejects the kind of Christ that dies. 
They want the victor riding on the horse. And so Jesus, he kind of ignores their question, doesn't he? He just moves on. But to an invitation. He leaves them and us with this invitation. He says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. My friends, Jesus is the light of the world, right? Isn't that what he claimed? Jesus is the light of the world, and he declares that their window of opportunity to walk in the light, to live in the light, that it is growing short. Uh, a couple of days ago, something happened. I don't know if you guys noticed it. Um, there was a little storm going on. I'm glad you're all okay. Um, if you're seeing somebody that's not here today, go check on them. Maybe we need to make sure everybody's all right. Um, so I was here at the church when it, when it came through, and I, and I knew that it was heading towards our house and where my, all my girls were at. And, um, and so I went to the front door, and I was watching this storm passing by, and I saw a cloud that was kind of coming down on the Bowman's house, and it looked like it was swirling, and I was like, oh, that's going to take Bob's place out. And, uh, but then I heard the sounds of the thundering and the storm, and, and I don't know if it was a tornado I was hearing, but I heard the peals of thunder, and, and it was all quiet to the east of, of here. And then I, um, um, I felt this change in the pressure. The, this things were altering, and I could feel it in the air. And then I heard this wind coming from the, the west. And I thought, this is a bad time to be outside. So I, I made a, a beeline for the stairs. By the time I got to the bottom of the stairs, uh, the wind ripped the front door open. Uh, which it sometimes catches it. And I heard a bang, which turned out to be the, uh, I think, the dumpster flipping upside down. And then the rain started and, and started pelting the doors. And so I, I, um, I go to the youth room, which is a great spot for a, a tornado shelter. And by the time I got down there, of course, the power was out, and it was pitch black. You get to this hallway here, and it's dark. You go into the youth room, and you can't see a thing. And so I, I started inching my way to the couches um, and uh, my phone is dying and so the light's really dim and so I'm, I'm inching my way to the youth couches and I, and I finally feel the couch against my, my leg and, um, and so I pff, sat down. What I didn't realize is that I was in between the, do you guys have a leg rest in there or something? I was in between the, the leg rest and the couches and I went flat on my back onto the floor and you're all laughing. Wow. Uh, light is important. And without it, we fumble in the dark and we are lost, lying on our back, wondering what in the world am I doing to myself. Jesus calls to the people. He says, look, the light's not here for much longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtakes you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. I, I can attest to that. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. You see, on Palm Sunday, we discover that Jesus is the King. 
We declare and, and we worship Jesus as the King. He's worthy of our worship. And God is glorified in Him. Even in His death and His resurrection. But serving Jesus means following Jesus. Not on our terms, but on His. And following Jesus begins and ends and everything in between is trusting Him, believing Him, walking by faith because He's the light. And without Him, we are floundering in the darkness. Too many people in this world rejoice at the idea of King Jesus. Too many today are celebrating His coming and they even call out His name. Just, we just got to love Jesus. You hear it all the time. You see bumper stickers about people loving Jesus, but when they, but they come to Jesus, they reject Him on His terms, and they choose to walk in the darkness because a, a Christ who dies is not the kind of king they're looking for still. They just want a Jesus that loves. And loves on their terms. They will never see Jesus except when He judges them and abandons them to the darkness that they chose. But my friends, with the Greeks who desired to come to him, may we be those who cry out, we wish to see Jesus. I just want to see Jesus. May we be those who believe in him, who trust in him, the light of the world. May we serve him as we follow him, and thus live as sons of light. My friend, if you're here today and you're in the darkness, you don't have to be. That window is closing for us as well, and Jesus is going to come back, and that opportunity will no longer be there. But the opportunity is there today. And so, while today is still called today, trust in Him. Come to Him. Believe in Jesus Christ on His terms, the one who died on the cross for you the one who died to take your sins upon himself because we were not able. Jesus offers the light. And so let us follow him.